It's the 18th of July in the year of our salvation, 2007, and you're back with Father Z and another podcast. Today we're going to do something a little different, usually in these podcasts. I have a reading from the Fathers of the Church, usually taken from the Officer Readings and the Liturgy of the Hours, but today we're going to have a contemporary author, and so we welcome as our guest today Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, who will be speaking to us from his wonderful book of the year 2000, at least in English translation, called The Spirit of the Liturgy. This was the book he very self-consciously named uh, after the same title as a famous book by uh, the great liturgist and uh, and figure in the liturgical movement of the 20th century, uh, Father Romano Gordini. He had his own book called The Spirit of the Liturgy, very, very important for the liturgical movement. What Joseph Ratzinger was trying to do in his own work, The Spirit of the Liturgy, was spark a new liturgical movement. And so what he has to say is very relevant for our day today because in his moves as Pope, we are going to see him putting into application things that he has been committed to for a very long time. So today, let's listen to Joseph Ratzinger, and we're going to dig down, we're going to drill down into one special aspect which is so important in the wake of his issuing the Modo Proprio Sumorum Pontificum. As all of you know, Pope Benedict has now finally released his motu proprio called Summorum Pontificum, by which he de-restricts the use of the older form of liturgy, the pre-conciliar liturgical books, and there are four of them, and they're all uh, books of the Roman Rite, and this is the focus of the document. It's all about the Roman Rite and Latin priests who have the right to use the Roman Rite. And those four books are, of course, the Breviarium Romanum, that's what the priest says his office from, is Liturgy of the Hours. There's the Pontificale Romanum, which is what bishops use in ordaining and confirming and in consecrating things like churches and, and uh, religious sisters and so forth. Then there is also the Rituale Romanum, and that's the book uh, that has blessings in it and other rites that aren't Holy Mass, such as baptism and uh, anointing of the sick, which was called Extreme Unction, and the processions and that sort of thing. But then there's the Missali Romanum, and that's the Mass book, the book for Holy Mass, and it contains both the readings and the order for the the, uh, the Eucharistic part of the liturgy, whereas after the Council, those two parts were split into different books, which we might call a sacramentary, improperly, really, I think, uh, although it's a very ancient term for the book for prayers for Mass. And then there's the lectionary, on the other hand, which has readings. And so by the modu proprio, 
what happened is that Pope Benedict, by explaining that there are not two different rites, a Tridentine rite, or a Vetus Ordo, and the Paul VI rite, or the Novus Ordo, by saying that there is only one rite in two different expressions, an ordinary form and an extraordinary form, it removes any necessity of any priest of the Latin Church to have a special permission to use the older form because any priest of the Latin rite has a, has the possibility of celebrating with his rite. It is his right to use his rite, as it were. And so, therefore, no special permission is necessary. Once he already obtains that foundational principle called faculties, that permission by which he can celebrate Mass or do the other sacraments or function in the Church uh, as a priest. So once he has that basic faculty, he has the right to use all of these different things. Of course, there are you know some details about how to order this, but that is a fundamentally what the motu proprio does. The motu proprio doesn't really do anything new. Just about everything, everything in the motu proprio, uh, any bishop could have already done before. Any bishop could have given every priest in his diocese uh, the right to use both masses, publicly or privately. He could uh, every bishop could have. Uh, even before the motu proprio, have set up parishes or institutes or organizations or chapels or whatever for the older use of things. The bishops already had all of this ability anyway. But what this motu proprio really does in a very innovative way is underscore the rights of priests and of lay people rather than underscoring the rights of bishops and in a very subtle and elegant way removes any obstacles uh, for the celebration of sacraments and different rites of the church according to the older form, simply by saying that there is only one Roman rite. Now, there are many critics, uh, people uh, very negatively disposed toward the motu proprio, and they will uh, very often express themselves and their objections in the form of clichés. Uh, what are some of these clichés? Well, for example, one of the most tired one is that the priest is up there in front muttering. That's almost always the, the word they use, muttering or mumbling sometimes in Latin, which is a language no one understands. And so uh, this is apparently a very bad thing, that the priest is up there using some other language and you can't hear him very well. Of course, you know, what, part of the reason this is cliché is that the priest isn't necessarily mumbling at all. It's just that you can't hear him. And uh, that, of course, is important to know because the priest isn't always talking to the congregation. Sometimes he's talking to God, and sometimes he's actually directed by the rubrics to say things quietly. So he's not mumbling, he's not muttering, he's just talking quietly. If he's, of course, doing the right thing, trying to be careful with what he says, he's not mumbling. But anyway, this cliché is launched out there all the time. And we read it in many of the different things we find in the press. Another cliché that is offered amongst objections uh, about the older form of Mass, and therefore too against this motu proprio, is that the priest is celebrating with his back to the people. Of course, this is patently false. What happens is that the people and the priest are both facing the same direction. And this is precisely the point we are going to get in today. Now, I'm not going to uh, go into uh, any more of the, of too many more of the details of the motu proprio here. What my objective is going to be in these next few podcasts is to dig into some of these cliches that we're going to hear, some of the objections, or maybe we can put it in a little different way, a different, a positive way. There may be people out there who just simply don't know much about the older form of Mass. But if they were to encounter it, or if they're listening carefully to things that are said about it, they might find certain things curious about it, or they may be puzzled by things, not necessarily in a negative way, but, but just simply they don't understand what it is. why is the priest up there, why can't we hear what Father is saying, why is he using Latin why is he up there with you know, as they say, uh, his back to the people, that's what it looks like, it's not really what it is, but why is he doing these things, these things have to be understood so rather than allow the critics of, of the older form of Mass or the motu proprio simply to, to use these clichés as a weapon against people's otherwise good disposition towards 
the way in which our church is being enriched by the motu proprio. Let's dig into the, these things. Let's drill down into them. And we're going to maybe in these next few podcasts talk about things like silence and uh, why you can't hear, why a different language, why is the altar over there instead of this way, why is the priest up there with his back to us, and all these different things. We have to look at them and drill down into them and understand them. Because the motu proprio is all about opening up and enriching people's understanding of the liturgy as a as a, a, a tool, a wonderful tool of helping us understand who we are as Catholics, what our Catholic identity is. So today I'm going to take you into one of the most obvious points, this cliche on the one hand, or curious point on the other, if you're going to see it more positively, of why the priest's back is to the people, as they say. And our guest today, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, now Benedict XVI, is going to help us understand this. We're going to drill into this question of the orientation of the altar. And we're going to use his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, which was published in English translation uh, by Ignatius Press in the year 2000. And I'm going to use part of one chapter which, uh, in which uh, Ratzinger is describing uh, how the synagogue uh, developed into the Christian church. And it'll be just part of that chapter, but it's an extended part, and it's a very important part. And then I'll go into and read the third chapter, the whole third chapter to you, which is all about the orientation of the altar. And he really digs into it there. And I think it's useful to have these extended readings because it'll give you something to, to really mull over, especially if you listen to it more than once and share it with other people and maybe even talk about the points. But in this very first point, this very first section that I'm going to read, there are some things I want you to pay attention to. Uh, Ratzinger talks about three different innovations. And remember, when Ratzinger talks about innovations, he doesn't do it in the sense of a rupture with what had gone before. But he always talks about continuity and innovation. And that's something for you to listen to very carefully. But the three points that he is going to dig into here is that we no longer look to Jerusalem. Because we are now Christians, we celebrate the sacrifice of the Eucharist, and therefore we have to have an altar. And the word remains, and so a place for the word is necessary in the church. Now, he's going to spin these three different points out. So here we go straight into a section from Joseph Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy. This is really a good preamble toward the longer section, uh, chapter 3, which will follow. I have lingered over this description of the synagogue because it exhibits already the essential and constant features of Christian places of worship. Once again, we see clearly the essential unity of the two testaments. Not surprisingly, in Semitic, non-Greek Christianity, the original form of church buildings generally retains the close connection of church with synagogue, a pattern of religious continuity and innovation. I am thinking here of the Monophysite, and Nestorian churches of the Near East, which broke away from the Church of the Byzantine Empire during the Christological debates of the 5th century. Christian faith produced three innovations in the form of the synagogue as we have just sketched it. These give Christian liturgy its new and proper profile. First of all, the worshipper no longer looks toward Jerusalem. The destroyed temple is no longer regarded as the place of God's earthly presence. The temple built of stone has ceased to express the hope of Christians. Its curtain is torn forever. Christians look toward the east, the rising sun. This is not a case of Christians worshipping the sun, but of the cosmos speaking of Christ. The song of the sun in Psalm 19 is interpreted as a song about Christ when it says, quote, The sun comes forth like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. Verses 5 following. This psalm proceeds directly from applauding creation 
to praising the law. Christians interpret it in terms of Christ, who is the living word, the eternal logos, and thus the true light of history, who came forth in Bethlehem from the bridal chamber of the Virgin Mother, and now pours out his light on all the world. The East supersedes the Jerusalem temple as a symbol. Christ, represented by the sun, is the place of the Shekinah, the true throne of the living God. In the Incarnation, human nature truly becomes the throne and seat of God, who is thus forever bound to the earth and accessible to our prayers. In the early church, prayer toward the East was regarded as an apostolic tradition. We cannot date exactly when this turn to the East, the diverting of the gaze from the temple, took place, but it is certain that it goes back to the earliest times and was always regarded as an essential characteristic of Christian liturgy and indeed of private prayer. This orientation of Christian prayer has several different meanings. Orientation is, first and foremost, a simple expression of looking to Christ as the meeting place between God and man. It expresses the basic Christological form of our prayer. The fact that we find Christ in the symbol of the rising sun is the indication of a Christology defined eschatologically. Praying toward the east means going to meet the coming Christ. The liturgy turned toward the east effects entry, so to speak, into the procession of history toward the future. The new heaven and the new earth which we encounter in Christ. It is a prayer of hope, the prayer of the pilgrim as he walks in the direction shown us by the life, passion, and resurrection of Christ. Thus, very early on, in parts of Christendom, the eastward direction for prayer was given added emphasis by a reference to the cross. This may have come from linking Revelation 1, verse 7, with Matthew 24, verse 30, in the first of these, the revelation of St. John, it says, quote, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, every one who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. Here, the seer of the Apocalypse depends on John 19, verse 37, where, at the end of the account of the crucifixion, the mysterious text of the prophet Zechariah, 12 verse 10, is quoted. A text that suddenly acquires a wholly new meaning, quote, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. Finally, in Matthew 24 verse 30, we are given these words of the Lord, quote, Then on the last day will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn compare Zechariah 12 verse 10 and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven compare Daniel 7 verse 13 with power and great glory the sign of the son of man of the pierced one is the cross which has now become the sign of victory of the risen one thus the symbolism of the cross merges with that of the east both are an expression of one and the same faith in which the remembrance of the Pasch of Jesus makes it present and gives dynamism to the hope that goes out to meet the one who is to come. But, finally, this turning toward the East also signifies that cosmos and saving history belong together. The cosmos is praying with us. It, too, is waiting for redemption. It is precisely this cosmic dimension that is essential to Christian liturgy. It is never performed solely in the self-made world of man. It is always a cosmic liturgy. The theme of creation is embedded in Christian prayer. It loses its grandeur when it forgets this connection. That is why, wherever possible, we should definitely take up again the apostolic tradition of facing the East, both 
in the building of churches and in the celebration of the liturgy. We shall come back to this later when we say something about the ordering of liturgical prayer. The second innovation in regard to the synagogue is as follows. A new element has appeared that could not exist in the synagogue. At the east wall, or in the apse, there now stands an altar on which the Eucharistic sacrifice is celebrated. As we saw, the Eucharist is an entry into the liturgy of heaven. By it we become contemporaries with Jesus Christ's own act of worship, into which, through his body, he takes up worldly time, and straightway leads it beyond itself, snatching it out of its own sphere, and enfolding it into the communion of eternal love. Thus the altar signifies the entry of him who is the Orient into the assembled community, and the going out of the community from the prison of this world through the curtain now torn open, a participation in the Pasch, the passing over from the world to God, which Christ has opened up. It is clear that the altar in the apse both looks toward the Oriens and forms part of it. In the synagogue, the worshippers looked beyond the Ark of the Covenant, the Shrine of the Word, toward Jerusalem. Now, with the Christian altar, comes a new focal point. Let us say it again. On the altar, what the temple had in the past foreshadowed is now present in a new way. Yes, it enables us to become the contemporaries of the sacrifice of the Logos. Thus it brings heaven into the community assembled on earth, or rather it takes that community beyond itself into the communion of saints of all times and places. We might put it this way. The altar is the place where heaven is opened up. It does not close off the church, but opens it up and leads it into the eternal liturgy. We shall have more to say about the practical consequences of the significance of the Christian altar, because the question of the correct position for the altar is at the center of the post-conciliar debate. But first we must finish what we were saying about the different ways in which the Christian faith transformed the synagogue. The third point to be noted is that the shrine of the word remained, even with regard to its position in the church building. However, of necessity, there is a fundamental innovation here. The Torah is replaced by the Gospels, which alone can open up the meaning of the Torah. Moses, says Christ, wrote of me. John 5, verse 46. The shrine of the word, the Ark of the Covenant, now becomes the throne of the gospel. The gospel does not, of course, abolish the scriptures, nor push them to one side, but rather interprets them, so that henceforth and forever they form the scriptures of the Christians, without which the gospel would have no foundation. The practice in the synagogue of covering the shrine with a curtain in order to express the sacredness of the word is retained. Quite spontaneously, the new, second holy place, the altar, is surrounded by a curtain from which in the Eastern Church the iconostasis develops. The fact that there are two holy places had significance for the celebration of the liturgy. During the Liturgy of the Word, the congregation gathered around the shrine of the sacred books, or around the seat associated with it, which evolved quite spontaneously from the seat of Moses to the bishop's throne. Just as the rabbi did not speak by his own authority, so the bishop expounds the Bible in the name and by the mandate of Christ. Thus, from being a written word for the past, it again becomes what it is, God's addressing us here and now. At the end of the Liturgy of the Word, during which the faithful stand around the bishop's seat, everyone walks together with the bishop to the altar, and now the cry resounds, Conversi ad Dominum, 
turn toward the Lord. In other words, look toward the east with the bishop in the sense of the words from the epistle to the Hebrews. Quote, look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 12 verse 2. The liturgy of the Eucharist is celebrated as we look up to Jesus. It is our looking up to Jesus. Thus, in the early church buildings, the liturgy has two places. First, the liturgy of the Word takes place at the center of the building. The faithful are grouped around the bema, the elevated area where the throne of the gospel, the seat of the bishop, and the lectern are located. The Eucharistic celebration proper takes place in the apse, at the altar, which the faithful stand around. Everyone joins with the celebrant in facing east, toward the Lord who is to come. That was our preamble, as it were, uh, taken from uh, the second chapter of Joseph Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy, our preamble to the third chapter, which uh, is going to be coming up in a moment. But I want to return to to something that we heard here, the three points, the three innovations uh, that he identified. First, we no longer look to Jerusalem. The curtain is torn. And now we pray facing Christ, the Christ who is to come. And so there's a physical orientation. We pray toward Christ. The second point is that because uh, we Christians celebrate the sacrifice of Christ, and that is the sacrifice of the Eucharist, we need a special place in, in our worship building. And we need an altar, an altar of sacrifice in our churches. And the altar is actually the sign of the entry of Christ into our own community as we face him when he comes, and therefore our being drawn out uh, of ourselves by Christ toward a, the eternal love of the Father. And a third point is that the word remains. And so the word and the uh, proclamation of the word needs its own point of reference in the church. We need a differentiation of the places of word and of sacrifice. And uh, so uh, we always look beyond beyond the, the, uh, the physical point, but through the physical point toward a greater reality. And this is something that he's, he's trying to show. It's of the essence of our liturgy, the very, the very nature of Christian prayer, to look toward the Lord and to not close ourselves off within ourselves. This is very, very important. Now, in the second part, the second uh, extended reading, which is chapter 3, I want you to listen for a couple of things. First of all, notice how Ratzinger, when he talks about um, innovation, he always talks about continuity. There's continuity and innovation. There's newness and preservation. But it's always with reference to opening up toward the future. This is very important for understanding what Joseph Ratzinger, what Papa Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, is doing. He's never trying to turn back the clock. As a matter of fact, he says that that's impossible. We can't turn it back. We always have to be looking toward the future, but we can't be looking toward the future unless we understand and we integrate well who we are, and that comes from where we have been. So listen to different points of that continuity between the old and the new, but always with a view to the future. This is his pattern of thought.
Another thing uh, to pay attention to is this business of the model of St. Peter's Basilica. You will hear a lot of people who have been to some liturgical workshop or other say that, oh, well, we have to face each other um, over the altar, the priest and congregation, because that's the way it's done at St. Peter's in Rome. Well, he is using, uh, Ratzinger is using some very good scholarship. He's drawing on Louis Bouillet and also on the famous uh, lit liturgist Klaus Gambert to uh, explain to us what really was happening in St. Peter's Basilica, that it only apparently looks as if priest and people are facing each other. It's just an, uh, an outward appearance of that. That's not really what was going on. And when he digs into the reality of what was happening in St. Peter's Basilica, then it makes it much clearer that they are facing the East. As a matter of fact, the scholarship, for, based on the scholarship of Klaus Gambert, uh, we know that at a certain point in the liturgies of the ancient basilica that the people were told literally to turn around, to turn so that they would face the east, which wound up in that east-to-west-oriented east basilica built into the side of the hill as it was, that the priest wound up behind everyone, that the priest was actually, shall we say, looking at the backs of the people as they all faced east together. That's how important facing east is. Another thing that uh, Ratzinger is going to do in this chapter we'll hear is that he answers objections, and these objections are eerily similar to what we are reading today in the press of by, from critics of Pope Benedict and of this motu proprio and of the ancient form of Mass. Uh, particularly, we'll hear him answer the cliché that Mass is about, you know, that the old Mass is about turning your back to the people. The priest turns his back to the people. He specifically goes after that. But he also answers some of the other objections. So listen very carefully to how he steps his way through this and presents this wonderful vision that it is of the essence of Christian prayer to be facing the Lord and therefore this needs a place, an expression, physical expression in the church itself of where the altar is placed and then where the priest and the people are in orientation to this altar. Here we go into chapter 3 of Joseph Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy. Chapter 3. The Altar and the Direction of Liturgical Prayer The reshaping so far described of the Jewish synagogue for the purpose of Christian worship clearly shows, as we have already said, how even in architecture there is both continuity and newness in the relationship of the Old Testament to the New. As a consequence, expression in space had to be given to the properly Christian act of worship the celebration of the Eucharist, together with the ministry of the Word which is ordered toward that celebration. Plainly, further developments became not only possible but necessary. A place set aside for baptism had to be found. The sacrament of penance went through a long process of development which resulted in changes to the form of the church building. Popular piety in its many different forms inevitably found expression in the place dedicated to divine worship. The question of sacred images had to be resolved. Church music had to be fitted into the spatial structure. We saw that the architectural canon for the liturgy of the word and sacrament is not a rigid one, though with every new development and reordering the question has to be posed what is in harmony with the essence of the liturgy, and what detracts from it. In the very form of its places of divine worship, which we have just been considering, Christianity, 
speaking and thinking in a Semitic way, has laid down principles by which this question can be answered. Despite all the variations in practice that have taken place far into the second millennium, one thing has remained clear for the whole of Christendom. Praying toward the East is a tradition that goes back to the beginning. Moreover, it is a fundamental expression of the Christian synthesis of cosmos and history, of being rooted in the once-for-all events of salvation history, while going out to meet the Lord who is to come again. Here, both the fidelity to the gift already bestowed and the dynamism of going forward are given equal expression. Modern man has little understanding of this orientation. Judaism and Islam, now as in the past, take it for granted that we should pray toward the central place of revelation, to the God who has revealed himself to us, in the manner and in the place in which he revealed himself. By contrast, in the Western world, an abstract way of thinking, which in a certain way is the fruit of Christian influence, has become dominant. God is spiritual, and God is everywhere. Does that not mean that prayer is not tied to a particular place or direction? Now we can indeed pray everywhere, and God is accessible to us everywhere. This idea of the universality of God is a consequence of Christian universality, of the Christians looking up to God above all gods, the God who embraces the cosmos and is more intimate to us than we are to ourselves. But our knowledge of this universality is the fruit of revelation. God has shown himself to us. Only for this reason do we know him. Only for this reason can we confidently pray to him everywhere. And precisely for this reason it is appropriate, now as in the past, that we should express in Christian prayer our turning to the God who has revealed himself to us. Just as God assumed a body and entered the time and space of this world, so it is appropriate to prayer, at least to communal liturgical prayer, that our speaking to God should be incarnational, that it should be Christological, turned through the incarnate word to the triune God. The cosmic symbol of the rising sun expresses the universality of God above all particular places and yet maintains the concreteness of divine revelation. Our praying is thus inserted into the procession of the nations to God. But what about the altar? In what direction should we pray during the Eucharistic liturgy? In Byzantine church buildings, the structure just described was by and large retained, but in Rome a somewhat different arrangement developed. The bishop's chair was shifted to the center of the apse, and so the altar was moved into the nave. This seems to have been the case in the Lateran Basilica, and in St. Mary Major's well into the ninth century. However, in St. Peter's, during the pontificate of St. Gregory the Great, 590 to 604, the altar was moved nearer to the bishop's chair, probably for the simple reason that he was supposed to stand as much as possible above the tomb of St. Peter. This was an outward and visible expression of the truth that we celebrate the sacrifice of the Lord in the communion of saints, a communion spanning all times and ages. The custom of erecting an altar above the tombs of the martyrs probably goes back a long way and is an outcome of the same motivation. Throughout history the martyrs continue Christ's self-oblation. They are like the church's living altar, not made of stones but of men, who have become members of the body of Christ and thus express a new kind of cultus. Sacrifice is humanity becoming love with Christ. The ordering of St. Peter's was then copied, so it would seem, in many other stational churches in Rome. For the purposes of this discussion, we do not need to go into the disputed details of this process. The controversy in our own century was triggered by another innovation. Because of 
topographical circumstances, it turned out that St. Peter's faced west. Thus, if the celebrating priest wanted, as the Christian tradition of prayer demands, to face east, he had to stand behind the people and look, this is the logical conclusion, toward the people. For whatever reason it was done, one can also see this arrangement in a whole series of church buildings within St. Peter's direct sphere of influence. The liturgical renewal in our own century took up this alleged model and developed from it a new idea for the form of the liturgy. The Eucharist, so it was said, had to be celebrated versus populum, toward the people. The altar, as can be seen in the normative model of St. Peter's, had to be positioned in such a way that priest and people looked at each other and formed together the circle of the celebrating community. This alone, so it was said, was compatible with the meaning of the Christian liturgy, with the requirement of active participation. This alone conformed to the primordial model of the Last Supper. These arguments seemed, in the end, so persuasive that after the council, which says nothing about turning toward the people, new altars were set up everywhere, and today celebration versus populum really does look like the characteristic fruit of Vatican II's liturgical renewal. In fact, it is the most conspicuous consequence of a reordering that not only signifies a new external arrangement of the places dedicated to the liturgy, but also brings with it a new idea of the essence of the liturgy, the liturgy as a communal meal. This is, of course, a misunderstanding of the significance of the Roman Basilica and of the positioning of its altar, and the representation of the Last Supper is also, to say the least, inaccurate. Consider, for example, what Louis Bouillet has to say on the subject. Quote, the idea that a celebration facing the people must have been the primitive one, and that, especially of the Last Supper, has no other foundation than a mistaken view of what a meal could be in antiquity, Christian or not. In no meal of the early Christian era did the president of the banqueting assembly ever face the other participants. They were all sitting or reclining on the convex side of a C-shaped table, or of a table having approximately the shape of a horseshoe. The other side was always left empty for the service. Nowhere in Christian antiquity could have arisen the idea of having to face the people to preside at a meal. The communal character of a meal was emphasized just by the opposite disposition, the fact that all the participants were on the same side of the table. Pages 53 to 54. In any case, there is a further point that we must add to this discussion of the shape of meals. The Eucharist that Christians celebrate really cannot adequately be described by the term meal. True, the Lord established the new reality of Christian worship within the framework of a Jewish Passover meal, but it was precisely this new reality, not the meal as such, that he commanded us to repeat. Very soon, the new reality was separated from its ancient context, and found its proper and suitable form, a form already predetermined by the fact that the Eucharist refers back to the cross, and thus to the transformation of temple sacrifice into the worship of God that is in harmony with Logos. Thus it came to pass that the synagogue liturgy of the word, renewed and deepened in a Christian way, merged with the remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection to become the Eucharist, and precisely thus was fidelity to the command, Do this, fulfilled. This new and all-encompassing form of worship could not be derived simply from the meal, but had to be defined through the interconnection of temple and synagogue, word and sacrament, cosmos and history. 
it expresses itself in the very form that we discovered in the liturgical structure of the early churches in the world of Semitic Christianity. It also, of course, remained fundamental for Rome. Once again, let me quote Bouillet, quote, Never and nowhere before that, that is, before the 16th century, have we any indication that any importance or even attention was given to whether the priest celebrated with the people before him or behind him. As Professor Cyril Vogel has recently demonstrated, it, the only thing ever insisted upon or even mentioned, was that he should say the Eucharistic prayer as all other prayers facing east. Even when the orientation of the church enabled the celebrant to pray turned toward the people when at the altar, we must not forget that it was not the priest alone who then turned east. It was the whole congregation together with him. Pages 55 to 56. Admittedly, these connections were obscured or fell into total oblivion in the church buildings and liturgical practice of the modern age. This is the only explanation for the fact that the common direction of prayer of priest and people were labeled as celebrating toward the wall or turning your back on the people and came to seem absurd and totally unacceptable. And this alone explains why the meal even in modern pictures, became the normative idea of liturgical celebration for Christians. In reality, what happened was that an unprecedented clericalization came on the scene. Now the priest, the presider, as they now prefer to call him, becomes the real point of reference for the whole liturgy. Everything depends on him. We have to see him, to respond to him, to be involved in what he is doing. His creativity sustains the whole thing. Not surprisingly, people try to reduce this newly created role by assigning all kinds of liturgical functions to different individuals and entrusting the creative planning of the liturgy to groups of people who like to, and are supposed to, make their own contribution. Less and less is God in the picture. More and more important is what is done by the human beings who meet here and do not like to subject themselves to a predetermined pattern. The turning of the priest toward the people has turned the community into a self-enclosed circle. In its outward form, it no longer opens out on what lies ahead and above, but is closed in on itself. The common turning toward the east was not a celebration toward the wall. It did not mean that the priest had his back to the people. The priest himself was not regarded as so important. For just as the congregation in the synagogue looked together toward Jerusalem, so in the Christian liturgy the congregation looked together toward the Lord. As one of the fathers of the Vatican II's constitution of the liturgy, J. A. Jungmann put it, it was much more a question of priest and people facing in the same direction, knowing that, together, they were in a procession toward the Lord. They did not close themselves into a circle, they did not gaze at one another, but as the pilgrim people of God, they set off for the Oriens, for the Christ who comes to meet us. But is this not all romanticism and nostalgia for the past? Can the original form of Christian prayer still say something to us today, or should we try to find our own form, a form for our own times? Of course, we cannot simply replicate the past. Every age must discover and express the essence of the liturgy anew. The point is to discover this essence amid all the changing appearances it would surely be a mistake to reject all the reforms of our century wholesale. When the altar was very remote from the faithful, it was right to move it back to the people. In cathedrals, this made it possible to recover the tradition of having the altar at the crossing, the meeting point in the nave and the presbyterium. It was also important clearly to distinguish the place for liturgy of the word from the place for the properly Eucharistic liturgy. 
for the liturgy of the word is about speaking and responding and so a face-to-face exchange between proclaimer and hearer does make sense in the psalm the hearer internalizes what he has heard takes it into himself and transforms it into prayer so that it becomes a response on the other hand a common turning to the east during the eucharistic prayer remains essential this is not a case of something accidental but of what is essential looking at the priest has no importance what matters is looking together at the lord it is not now a question of dialogue but of common worship of setting off toward the one who is to come what corresponds with the reality of what is happening is not the closed circle but the common movement forward expressed in a common direction for prayer hoistling has leveled several objections at these ideas of mine which i have presented before the first i have just touched on these ideas are alleged to be a romanticism for the old ways a misguided longing for the past it is said to be odd that i should speak only of christian antiquity and pass over the succeeding centuries coming as it does from a liturgical scholar this objection is quite remarkable as i see it the problem with a large part of modern liturgiology is that it tends to recognize only antiquity as a source and therefore normative and to regard everything developed later in the middle ages and through the council of trent as decadent and so one ends up with dubious reconstructions of the most ancient practice fluctuating criteria and never-ending suggestions for reform which lead ultimately to the disintegration of the liturgy that has evolved in a living way on the other hand it is important and necessary to see that we cannot take as our norm the ancient in itself and as such nor must we automatically write off later developments as alien to the original form of the liturgy there can be a thoroughly living kind of development in which a seed at the origin of something ripens and bears fruit we shall have to come back to this idea in a moment but in our case as we have said what is at issue here is not a romantic escape into antiquity but a rediscovery of something essential in which christian liturgy expresses its permanent orientation of course hoisling thinks that turning to the east toward the rising sun is something that nowadays we just cannot bring into the liturgy is that really the case are we not interested in the cosmos any more are we today really hopelessly huddled in our own little circle is it not important precisely today to pray with the whole of creation is it not important precisely today to find room for the dimension of the future for hope in the lord who is to come again to recognize again indeed to live the dynamism of the new creation as an essential form of the liturgy another objection is that we do not need to look toward the east toward the crucifix that when the priest and faithful look at one another they are looking at the image of god in man and so facing one another is the right direction for prayer i find it hard to believe that the famous critic thought this was a serious argument for we do not see the image of god in man in such a simplistic way the image of god in man is not of course something that we can photograph or see with a merely photographic kind of perception we can indeed see it but only with the new seeing of faith we can see it just as we can see the goodness in a man his honesty interior truth humility love everything in fact that gives him a certain likeness to god but if we are to do this we must learn a new kind of seeing and that is what the eucharist is for a more important objection is of the practical order ought we really to be rearranging everything all over again nothing is more harmful to the liturgy than a constant activism even if it seems to be for the sake of genuine renewal 
I see a solution in a suggestion that comes from the insights of Eric Peterson. Pacing east, as we heard, was linked with the sign of the Son of Man, with the cross, which announces the Lord's second coming. That is why very early on the east was linked with the sign of the cross, where a direct common turning toward the east is not possible. The cross can serve as the interior east of faith. It should stand in the middle of the altar and be the common point of focus for both priest and praying community. In this way we obey the ancient call to prayer, conversi ad dominum, turn toward the Lord. In this way we look together at the one whose death tore the veil of the temple, the one who stands before the Father for us and encloses us in his arms in order to make us the new and living temple. Moving the altar cross to the side to give an uninterrupted view of the priest is something I regard as one of the truly absurd phenomena of recent decades. Is the cross disruptive during Mass? Is the priest more important than the Lord? This mistake should be corrected as quickly as possible. It can be done without further rebuilding. The Lord is the point of reference. He is the rising sun of history. That is why there could be a cross of the passion, which represents the suffering Lord, who for us let his side be pierced, from which flowed blood and water. Eucharist and baptism, as well as a cross of triumph, which expresses the idea of the second coming and guides our eyes toward it. For it is always the one Lord, Christ yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. That was chapter 3 of Joseph Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy, that book uh, which took its name from Romano Guardini's own book, uh, The Spirit of the Liturgy, back in the liturgical movement of the 20th century, which has so influenced not only Joseph Ratzinger, but just about everybody in, in the Church uh, ever since, and influenced the deliberations of the Second Vatican Council. And one of the things I want to return to uh, in there is the issue of the priest and where the priest is and what side of the altar he is. Now, uh, His Holiness in his book here, writing as Joseph Ratzinger, talks about how it's just the priest is just not that important. Well, of course he's important in so many different ways because he's altar Christus, but what really isn't important is that people see everything that he's doing or that the people and the priest are looking at each other. Because what that does is it is it turns the, the community, which is the priest and the people gathered, into a self-enclosed circle. It's, it's almost symbolically self-enclosed. Instead of opening outward to the Lord who is coming, they are dwelling on themselves, you see. And it's not important at all to see, necessarily, everything that the priest does or hear everything that the priest does. The priest just isn't important. What matters is looking together at the Lord, as Ratzinger puts it. And so we need to find ways to get the priest out of the way. So here's the psychological thing involved in this. When you put a guy up in front of a bunch of people and they're facing each other, a man is going to become very kind of, you know, self-aware. And there is a great temptation to impose yourself and your own personality on the action of what's going on. He's very self-conscious about what he's doing, and people then become more focused on what he is doing. And all, it's all about him. He, the priest becomes a distraction. And unfortunately, the newer form of Mass, when celebrated uh, versus populum, instead of ad orientem, toward Christ who's coming, the, the problem is, is that we open ourselves up to not only this we create this closed circle, but the closed circle focuses on the priest. The older form of Mass 
carefully controlled the priest through very accurate rubrics and so forth. The priest couldn't impose himself too much on the Mass. Now, of course, obviously, Father's personality is going to come out no matter what we do because this is a human action and so forth, and he's a man, and it's just the way it, things have to happen. But the priest was kept very tightly under control in the older form of Mass. He couldn't get too much in the way. Even in those times when he had to go and sit down, for example, during a long uh, singing of the Gloria or the Creed, well, he would have to sit sideways, facing the wall. He wouldn't even face outward toward the people. So there were psychologically certain things that happened as soon as you turned the altar around. Not only these theolo deeper theological issues, but just simply the human psychological things changed about the, the, way, uh, the way we would focus our prayer uh, during Holy Mass. The priest got in the way, and also, uh, just symbolically, it didn't look like we were actually praying toward the Lord anymore. I have never had an easy life, but I'm not complaining. It has taught me how to stand and fight for what I believe in. I guess that's just how I was raised I find it hard to walk away I will not back down When you push me to the wall Expecting me I hope that this drilling down into the question of the position of the altar and the direction or orientation of liturgical prayer has been helpful for you. As I stated at the onset, there might be people out there listening who really don't understand what is what this is all about. Why face this direction? Why not face each other over the altar? I mean, isn't that nice to do? Or uh, that they, they feel like they like to see and, and hear everything. Well, there are going to be uh, a lot of a lot of uh, discussion of this in, in time to come after the issuing, uh, especially when the motu proprio goes into force on the 14th of September in the year of our Lord 2007. But uh, what's really important here is the opportunity for liturgical catechesis. We really need to understand as a praying people a lot more about who we are as a praying people, why we do the things that we do, that the things that we do aren't just empty signs that can be changed at a, as a, at a whim simply to be able to express uh, who this group is, you know, gathered at you know the church of Saint Ipsy Dipsy in Black Duck, as opposed to you know being at 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 Saint Fidelia over in Tall Tree Circle. You know these different different uh, communities should have a right to express themselves and who they are by changing the forms, right? Well, see, once we do that, once we do that, we lose a great deal. We've we've created a a, a rupture between one community and another. There are certain things that that we do as Catholics, and we have to understand what they are. And one of the essential characteristics, as described by Joseph Ratzinger, is our, the orientation of our prayer. So when you hear now that the old Mass is all about, you know, the back, priest back being to the people, now you'll understand a little bit more, and you'll be able to maybe explain this to others. We always have to be ready to give reasons for the hope that is in us, to adapt that wonderful phrase from the, the letter of Peter. We have to be ready to explain, and we have to understand, because by understanding a little bit more about who we come from, you know, where, we, where we come from and why we pray the way we do, we'll understand what we believe uh, more deeply, and also we will be able to love the content of our prayer 
more deeply. Remember that the content of our prayer isn't just words that we recite or gestures that we go through. The real content of our prayer is a person. It's a living person. It's a divine person. It's Jesus Christ. He is the one in action. He is the one to whom we orient our liturgical prayer. So I hope this has been very valuable to you. And uh, feel free to express yourself in uh, comments on the blog. What does the prayer really say? WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. Also on the left sidebar of the blog, there's a place where you can leave voicemail, audio uh, recordings just by clicking a button. If you have a microphone attached to your computer, you can leave me a little note. And if it's good and creative and uh, pertinent to what we're doing here, I can incorporate them into future podcasts. In any event, I hope you are uh, benefiting from your own uh, deep and loving study of the prayer of our church. And uh, God bless you and yours. We'll be back with you real soon. No, it's not in my blood. It just